morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded view in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, December 14th, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. In today's text, St. Paul speaks to the Corinthians concerning their use of the gifts of prophecy and tongues. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Great to be back. Welcome to the bunker, the Bible bunker. Glad, glad to be here in the downstairs radio recording office. That's right. I need more friends to come over and play with me. Bring your friends with you next time. You got it. Okay. All right. Pastor Ill, we get to talk about 1 Corinthians 14, the first part of the chapter today. What kind of context should we know about the epistle and leading up to this section to help us with this part of chapter 14. So kind of starting with where we are, uh, this is the end. We're, we're coming right up on the end of 1 Corinthians as a book, but we're also getting really close to the end of a particular point that Paul's been making. And so he started laying the groundwork back like in chapter 8 uh, to talk about charismatic gifts or gifts of grace that the Holy Spirit gives and how they are used in the church. And especially in chapter uh, 12, 13, and 14, you have kind of this subsection about these gifts of grace. And so he sets some things up in chapter 12, and according to the way that we kind of read 1 Corinthians, uh, it seems like he takes a break uh, as he talks about love in chapter 13, but it's not a break at all, not the way that Paul is constructing this argument uh, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Instead, to talk about love is going to dovetail with how he talks about these charismatic gifts of grace in the... uh, in chapter 14. And so there is some really neat stuff here when you start to read chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 together. And so, dear listener, when we hit the break, uh, if you're not driving, then go ahead and and open your Bible and really quickly read chapter 12 and chapter 13 as we as we continue going through chapter 14 here. Um, but to broaden that out even a little bit more, all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been talking about unity. Uh, we're not exactly sure what was going on in the 1 Corinthian church, in the church in Corinth around this time, but to say that there were some, some pretty major issues about their unity and about their disagreements among them uh, from the way that Paul writes to them seems pretty clear. So as Paul is continuing to deal with all of the things that are going on with the Corinthian church, he tells them to love each other, And he gives them instructions about these gifts of prophecy and these gifts of speaking in tongues in order to build up the church and in order that the Church of Christ be unified there in their city and in their congregations. And so it's all about unity, and that unity comes from love, and that love is expressed in prophecy and in the appropriate use of speaking in tongues. So, Pastor Ill, if if I recall correctly from some of your times on Concord Matters, you're a big fan of defining your terms. Yeah, I, I do like to define terms. And uh, I know you just used two terms that I think need some defining, prophecy and tongues. Sure. 
Uh, actually, I think I used three terms that oh, require well, defining. Since, who's let, let me bring my own in, if that's okay, and we'll start. We'll start Absolutely. there. Uh, sometimes there's a phrase used of, of charismatic gifts, uh, and that comes from the way that uh, the Greek words are used here in First Corinthians 14. Uh, it's really important, though, that we recognize that these gifts that are called charismatic, of speaking in tongues and prophecy, aren't a way of proving that we are a better Christian than anyone else. But I really actually like the phrase charismatic gifts because the Greek word for grace is charis. It is from the grace of God that these gifts come, and it is a work of God that these gifts are shown to be. And so we never want to separate God's grace from these gifts. And when there have been issues in church history about prophecy and speaking in tongues, it's because people have separated speaking in tongues from God's grace. Let's not do that. And so we are always looking for God's grace. And when that's expressed in these particular gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues, thanks be to God. And when God's grace is expressed in a different way, thanks be to God. God's grace is always a good thing, but let's not ever get in the way of seeing God's grace. Good advice. Yeah. And that some of what you're saying takes us back into chapter 12 from the very beginning where Paul starts the whole conversation about the work of the Spirit with confessing Jesus as Lord. That's the work of the Spirit is to give us faith in Christ as our Savior, and from that grace then flow these other gifts. Exactly. So the gift of prophecy that Paul starts to speak about is something that um, may have been kind of lost in time for us. And there comes a point where we say, are people prophesying the same way that they were in the early church? Part of the reason that uh, people, that the early church in about the 300 stopped talking about these, what you would call ecstatic or revealed to you by God prophecies is because people were misusing them. And there's a, a number of accounts from the early church fathers that talk about how untrustworthy some of these prophecies after the New Testament would become. And, and some of the church fathers talked about the, uh, the sham prophecies was one of the phrases they used. I really like that one. Uh, and so that kind of prophecy was unreliable. And so we go back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, testing everything by what is written in the scriptures. And so if someone comes to you and says that they have a prophecy that comes from God, and it isn't in the scriptures, or it contradicts the scriptures, don't buy it. Uh, because prophecy lines up with what God has revealed in scripture, and we don't, God's grace isn't a choose-your-own-adventure novel. And I think that's a really important thing to say out loud, uh, simply to say, well, God told me this. Uh, if it doesn't line up with the scriptures, how are you sure that it was God who told you this? And, and we always need to be on guard about that because it's such a, such a pious and good-sounding thing to say, I heard this from God. Or you might hear a preacher say, God has laid it on my heart to, okay, that's good, but for me who doesn't live in anybody else's heart, how do I know what God laid on your heart and what you laid on your heart? Uh, so we need to be really careful about that. Then comes speaking in tongues. Uh, speaking in tongues shows up in several places in the New Testament, uh, most notably in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And here in Acts chapter 12, a little bit in chapter, sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a little bit in chapter 13, and here again in chapter 14, and then it kind of goes away, uh, kind of like this was a, a thing that happened some places and in some times, but isn't necessarily a universal experience in Christ's church. Um, 
And the easiest way to define speaking in tongues is to talk about it as uh, speaking in a known foreign language by the power of the Holy Spirit that the speaker doesn't ordinarily know. So, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn German because I think that would be a good thing for me to do. Uh, and so I could say German words to you. That wouldn't be speaking in tongues. But, Pastor Apple, if I started speaking to you in Swahili, for the, the goodness of our African listeners, uh, that, that would be great, but I don't know any Swahili. That might be an example of speaking in tongues. I doubt it's going to happen today, but it could. And, and in no way do I want to come across as saying that, that God can't do this still. God is God. He can do anything he wants. He wants to because he has that omnipotent uh, sense uh, and characteristic in himself. That's great. But I'm not sure that God often works that way. And we'll talk maybe a little bit more when we get to the end of our time together about why that might be. But here, I think it's helpful to say, we're not sure that God still works by speaking in tongues. If he wants to, he can. Um, But speaking in tongues doesn't make one Christian better than another. Speaking in tongues doesn't prove that you're a Christian. Uh, Your faith in Jesus Christ that God gives to you, that's what makes you a Christian. If you happen to speak in tongues, if you happen to have these, uh, what they call ecstatic, or given you by God, uh, revelations and prophecies, that's awesome. But we don't count on that to prove that we're Christian. We return to saying, what has God done for me, and how does God remind me that I'm a Christian? He speaks his word into my ears. I hear about the forgiveness of my sins. I read his scriptures. I remember that I'm one of his baptized children. I receive his body and his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. That's how we know we're Christian. And if we speak in tongues, that's cool too. So I think what you've what you've said about what God could do is very important because he's God, so he could do anything. But when we think about what we expect God to do, we always look to his promises. And that's one thing that we have in this chapter that's that's not there is there's no promise that these gifts will always show up in the same way in every place. And so when it comes to where we're going to hang our hat, we have to look at his promises, not what he could or couldn't do. So we're always going to bank on what God has promised. But to how you define tongues, I think it was very helpful. So we want to, to understand that this is a gift that happens not through the regular course of study, such as you and I went to school and studied both Greek and Hebrew, so that we could speak a few words in those languages. We're not talking about that. This is a gift that comes apart from that normal course of study. But the other thing that I think it's it's helpful for us to keep in mind, because in the majority of American Christianity today, it's the other part of that definition that seems to be the most misused or misunderstood, that when we're talking about these languages that are being spoken, again, apart from the normal course of studying, these are actual languages spoken by actual people, not languages that nobody knows or has never heard before. Right. And this goes back to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when St. Luke writes out all of the different people who are there in Jerusalem on that day, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia, and they can hear the apostles speaking each one in his own language. That's the same word for tongues that we have here, and there's this understanding of those being known languages. In the course of church history, and especially uh, in the 20th century and in the 
Western Church and in the United States, there is the idea of trying to separate the way that tongues are talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 from the way that speaking in tongues is talked about in Acts chapter 2. The problem is the language is exactly the same. St. Luke and St. Paul knew each other very well. They traveled together. They talked about these things together. And since St. Paul writes about the extent to which he spoke and prayed in tongues, the fact that Luke probably heard him do that is, it's not declared in Scripture, but I think there's a really strong probability that St. Luke did hear St. Paul pray and speak in tongues at various times. Uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but there's also, I think, within our, our context, this idea that if you're really a Christian in certain circles, you're going to speak in tongues. Um, let's always be clear and careful that somebody's ability to speak in tongues doesn't obscure the gift of God's grace that comes through Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. Just because you can speak in tongues by God's work, that's great. That doesn't mean that somehow you can be sure of your faith because you speak in tongues. You can be sure of your faith because faith in Christ. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that we're going to hear Paul emphasize that same idea today. And again, just to go back to the beginning of chapter 12, when the gifts are used to divide the church, then they're not being used for the purpose that the Spirit gave. And so if I think that my gift somehow makes me super Christian and the fact that you don't have that gift makes you what's the opposite of super Christian not a Christian not a Christian less than a Christian, less than a Christian something a poorer tier, Christian. tier yeah. two Christian then then I'm not using the gift as as the Holy Spirit had intended it so that is all a very helpful introduction to this text let's turn to first Corinthians 14 beginning at verse 1 pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you are saying? 
or you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Ill, our text begins with a carryover from the previous chapter, pursue love, Paul says. How does that set the stage for what he says here? Before I even get to the setting of the stage, I'm really sorry to contradict you again. You can. Um, you can do that. But chapter 13 ends with, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And the very next words you hear Paul say are, pursue love. And so we don't read chapter 13 without wanting to go into chapter 14. Um, and we don't read chapter 14, ignoring what came before it in chapter 13. That's good advice. Uh, and so, because this whole thing is one consistent argument through three chapters. And Paul is saying, if you can do all of these things, but you do them without love, you are nothing, you have nothing. Uh, and we, we love that passage. But to go on from the love that uh, comes from God to us and the love that we have toward God and towards uh, those others that he has put around us, then we say, so this love, how does it work itself out? Love is a wonderful thing to wrap up in your head, but this isn't just for wedding sermons anymore. Uh, this love is all about the work of God in his church as we continue to live together as Christians. And so here are some particular gifts that are probably being misused somehow in Corinth. We don't know exactly what they're doing that that Paul's writing against. Uh, sometimes pastors, maybe even apostles, uh, are arguing with what they know other people are doing or with the voices in their head uh, of how this could be misunderstood or mistaken. So what's Paul arguing against? We're not exactly sure, but there is some kind of, of maybe self-centeredness or selfishness that's going on with these charismatic gifts. And I think it's fair for us to say that that kind of selfishness and self-centeredness that was probably going on is unloving. And so Paul says, love one another, love God, love his church, and do it this way. And, boy, I really wish that you would all speak in tongues. That would be great. But you know what would be even greater is if you all prophesied too. Paul doesn't uh, at any point say that speaking in tongues is bad. But he does say that prophesying is better. And he does maintain this throughout this passage. And so we recognize the clarity that Paul regards this prophecy to have and some of the lack of clarity that comes with speaking in tongues. We see it today, but Paul also seemed to see it in the first century church in Corinth as well. 
the other thing that is going to really run through this passage is the use of Paul's word edify or build up. Uh, he uses it four times in 1 Corinthians up to chapter 14, and then he uses that word seven times mm. in 1 Corinthians. And so it's really exciting the way he just all of a sudden starts to unload this word. And the word that he uses for build up or edify is the same word that you would use to build a house. Mm. Uh, it, uh, it actually has the root words of build a house in it. I think, sorry, you can use that for your uh, church trivia nights, um, and you can all thank me later. Uh, but there is good stuff there, and this image of the church being a house that is built up and edified is exactly the language that Paul is wanting to use here. Hmm. All right, so prophecy is going to be held up as a better gift to desire than tongues without denigrating tongues as if those who have it are somehow lesser Christians. So to make the opposite error of what we were talking about previously. So prophecy, though, is the one that he's going to hold up as the one to be desired, because that is going to build up more than tongues. So that really sets the stage for the way he begins to speak in verse 2. Keep taking us into the text. Right. So um, one of the things that he starts to kind of raise issue with is, if speaking in tongues is unclear, and if if in a congregation that usually speaks the same language, what's the value of speaking in a tongue that might be a no, uh, that is a known language to some people, but maybe it's not the people in front of you? Uh, what's the point of uh, if you were to walk into a normal American congregation? There might be a pretty good chance that if somebody had a revelation from God and started speaking in Spanish, that there would be some Spanish speakers there who would be edified and built up. Uh, maybe if somebody walked into uh, one of our churches and started speaking in German or Norwegian, maybe there would be people who would be edified. But if somebody came in and started speaking, say, in in Russian, I, I have to admit, I don't know too many Russian Lutherans. It would be really cool if I did. Uh, and I know there are some out there, but I don't know them. I'm or or any other language that generally isn't known by the folks in our congregation, what good would that be? If somebody stood up who didn't know Chinese and started speaking in my congregation in Chinese, nobody would benefit because nobody in my church knows Chinese. It would be great. But it, it is hard to say how does this help anybody if sure. they don't speak that language. Sure. Um, and so Paul says, look, prophecy is clear for everybody, and tongues are clear for the people who know that language, but that might not be most of the people who are gathered inside of your church where you share a language in common. Right. So, right. yeah, and I mean, you know, in in our world today, in many of our congregations, although there, there are, are going to be some more and more that will speak a, a different language, or may, maybe even as a primary language, if you walk into most Missouri Synod churches today, there are going to be English speakers, almost almost entirely. At least the ones in the United States. In the United States, sure. exactly. Whereas at this time, in the city of Corinth, it is possible that some of these house churches are going to have people that are speaking different languages on a more, on a more regular basis than maybe what you and I are, are used to. And so the, the conversation of foreign languages is, is certainly very applicable to them. Thinking about it in, in modern terms, maybe the, the way to think about it would be a visiting missionary. So you, you know, you, you're supporting a missionary to Russia. He is Russian and speaks Russian. He comes to your church, and he starts preaching in Russian because that's the language. 
he is benefiting from that himself as he speaks and hears the word of God. But unless someone translates that into English for the sake of your congregation, it's not going to benefit them in hearing the word of God. Or vice versa, if, if you know you were to go as a visiting missionary to Russia and preach in English. Or to, to bridge it a little bit, I have sure. been a visiting missionary in India, um, and I heard pastors there in India preaching, and they were kind enough to put somebody who knew both the local language and English next to me so they could translate for the preacher so I actually knew what was going on right. and so that I was actually part of the assembly. That's kind of, I guess, reverse uh, translation in this case. Instead of translating the speaker uh, for everybody, you're translating the speaker for one person. But they were awfully kind to do it, and I really appreciated being able to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ who worship in a different language. It's a little bit of a different thing, right. but still worth mentioning. Uh, it's probably one of the closest parallels to this experience that we have today, even though it's not quite the same. Right, and the thing that makes it different is we're talking about languages, again, that have been studied and learned in the ordinary way, not a language that is a recognizable real language that is suddenly being spoken by the work of the Holy Spirit then and there. That that would be the difference in terms of the situation. But the application is is kind of what we're we're aiming at to see why this is an important thing that Paul is saying, why the speaking in tongues doesn't build up, doesn't edify in the same way that prophecy does. And as you said, this matter of love that seeks to build up not simply the individual, but the whole body of Christ in that place. That is Paul's primary concern, which is a bridge not only to chapter 13, but really to this entire epistle, that in this unity that we have in Christ and the truth that he's given, we would seek to build each other up in love. And that's what Paul wants them to do when it comes to the matter of tongues and prophecy within their worship services. We're going to keep talking about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking talking to Pastor Peter Ill this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, December 14th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were talking about verses 1 to 5 of this chapter. In verse 6, Paul begins to illustrate this 
with an image of musical instruments. I think you play the tuba, don't I you? I do. I, I see you're already stealing my 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 low brass thunder. I li- but that's okay. Um, the the previous chapter thirteen, I had Pastor Richard Mitwitty. He plays the trombone. He, we played together when we were in okay. seminary together. Yeah, this so I'm is not good sure stuff. How tubas and trombones feel about each other. Uh, we're good friends. Okay. We have a universal enemy in the trumpets, but we won't mention that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I shouldn't say enemy. Um, trumpets are just way up there, um, and and trombones and tubas. You know, we we anchor the fort down. There you um, go. But it doesn't matter if you play a trumpet or a trombone or a tuba or a flute or anything else. Um, if you're just making random sounds, that's fine. But random sounds don't equal a song. That's exactly what Paul points out here. And so if you've ever gone to a concert, uh, especially an instrumental music concert, like a band concert or an orchestra concert, and they come out and they all start to warm up and they're all playing their own notes, they might just be doing things to get their fingers or their instruments um, or themselves warmed up. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're playing any kind of a melody or any kind of a tune. This is not a song. You have all of a sudden 35 people making different jangly music sounds. And it's terrible. It is not comfortable. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't go anywhere. But when you put those musicians together and they start to play in a harmony, uh, then you have a song. And with that song, especially with the flute and the lyre that Paul talks about uh, in the first part of, of this subsection, you, you can sing along. And so you can all of a sudden have the musician playing a tune, you can sing. Uh, and now you have a song and it's a wonderful thing. Or to change the illustration a little bit, you can have a bugle player sound some kind of bugle call. And if you know what that bugle call means, then you go do the appropriate thing. Uh, I'm not a soldier, never was one, never played one on TV. Uh, but there's two bugle calls that I know of. There's the, there's the wake up bugle call, uh, Reveille, and there's the go to bed bugle call, Taps. And we use Reveille and Taps both uh, today for, for raising the flag and lowering the American flag here in the United States. Uh, TAPS also has a very strong uh, use at military funeral services. Um, And so we know those bugle calls. If I just picked up a bugle, though, and started to honk, uh, nobody would know what's going on, uh, because that's just sound. Paul says, in the same way that jangly sounds from an instrument are jangly sounds until they're arranged in a song, Speaking in tongues is just speaking in tongues, and it's it's kind of jangly, and it's not going anywhere or doing anything apart from an interpretation. That interpretation is really important because it is by the interpretation that the church is built up, that faith is built up, that love is expressed, and still, that's the big deal. And so this is the difference between 35 instrumentalists all warming up together and one church being built up by the grace of God through an orderly and proper use of speaking in tongues um, within this Corinthian context. Do they ever let the tuba sound the call? Uh, not not in a military setting. But but every once in a while I get to play in just tuba and euphonium, uh, like quartets. Uh, it's, it's, it's tuba Christmas time. I'm so excited. Uh, you get tubas and euphoniums together. We do this all over the world, and... and Oh, do we make happy sounds together? Uh, 
and and people are kind of horrified around us, but that's okay. <laughs> we still have a great time. But we try to edify people with Christmas carols and not go. just terrify them with our big scary tubas. Sure, and you you play in such a way that you sound together correctly and you do edify each other you edify those who hear rather than for the good of the one tuba or the one euphonium but for the the good of the whole i do appreciate the the matter of the bugle call because of the use of it so it's not just does it sound nice but does it serve the purpose for which it is given does it does it call people to battle and if it if it doesn't do that because it's not understood or because it's the wrong one then again maybe the individual who sounds it is built up. That was sure a beautiful call that I played, but it doesn't serve the purpose for the whole body. Does it mean something? And and sometimes when you start talking about classical music with, with classical music people, uh, they'll take this instrumental piece and they'll tell you all what they think it means. Mm. And you can ask them, how do you know that that's what it means? And they might say something, well, that's what it means to me, or that's what it means in my heart, or that's what I want it to mean. Well, those are all fine answers, I guess. But the idea that there's a universal meaning. Um, usually you can go to, if a composer said something about the piece that he wrote, then you know what it means. Um, other times, meaning comes based on what people collectively have said about it, or if the song has words, what those words say. Uh, and sometimes we like music because it's pretty. Uh, we don't just like, though, church music or things that happen in church because they're pretty but because they actually mean something right. uh, and they tell us something about Jesus Christ. And so if we're doing something in church simply because it's pretty, well, that's, that, that doesn't go anywhere. But to say, how does this thing that we do in our combined church service tell us about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that, that's where the meaning is, that's where the importance is. Yeah, and that, and that meaning comes from the composer himself, the one who gave us the word God. The other thing that I appreciate about this section is that language that Paul uses about if I don't understand this foreign language, then I become a foreigner, and so does the speaker to me, which, although it is a, a different image, a foreigner versus, say, a citizen of a country, I do think it relates to the way that Paul spoke again in chapter 12 of the Christ being the head, the members being the body. And again, although it's a slightly different image, it all fits together that when it comes to speaking in tongues, it's not always going to build up the whole body together in the same way that prophecy will. Absolutely. And so still the emphasis is on love that is understood. If that's in speaking in tongues, properly interpreted, great. If that's prophecy, great. But all of this goes somewhere and all of this means something it's not just nice for the sake of being nice or powerful for the sake of being powerful. Yeah, that's right. Now, all along, you've been using the language of interpretation. Paul talks that way, too. Another way to, to consider that word that's used for interpretation is simply translate. Perhaps that's just the way we need to understand this. So if, if there's no one else that understands this particular language that's spoken, it's not going to do anyone good unless someone's there to interpret or to translate and that's where Paul moves next in the conversation, beginning at about verse 13. How does Paul continue to, to speak about languages and tongues and interpretation and translation? So in verse 13, he starts with the person who speaks in tongues should pray uh, to interpret. Uh, and it, in the context, it kind of sounds like that person could interpret for themselves. Um, 
there are some murky bits here in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 and 19. And so let, let's go kind of explore the, murky, the murkiness together because it does talk about an interpretation or a translation. But then Paul starts to go on and talk about how uh, in verse 14 he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Uh, and then he goes on in verse 15, what am I to do? Should I pray with my, sp- I, I will pray with my spirit but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. And so this is hard for me to understand because I've never had one of these episodes where I've, I've spoken in a language that I don't know uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what is your mind doing? If you're given this by God, you don't have to think about this. Uh, for our listeners who, who speak in foreign languages or who read in foreign languages, you know that your mind is always active and churning, trying to come up with the right word and the right grammatical construction, and, and you want to say, say things in a way that you don't sound like a doofus. Uh, it's really important. Uh, but if the Holy Spirit is giving you these things and your body and your mouth and your spirit are involved, but your mind isn't involved, then what is your mind doing And Paul says, I want my mind involved in this prayer and in this singing and in this doing too. I don't just want to be uh, speaking with my mind in neutral. I want to be speaking with my mind, praying with my spirit. I want to be singing with my mind, with my spirit, and not just be disconnected where I'm a a shell that gives voice to the words that God wants me to say— without me knowing or thinking of them. Mm. Um, and it, I, I realize it's kind of a deep thought. Sure. Okay, so just to try to, and again, understanding that, that this section is not always the clearest as to precisely what Paul is talking about, but it sounds like what he's, when he talks about praying with his spirit or praying with his mind, that in this gift of tongues, which again is, is apart from the regular course of study, the Holy Spirit enables a person to speak in a, different recognizable language, perhaps the person himself who is speaking might not understand what he is saying, although he is perfectly speaking in German grammar, he doesn't actually understand it himself, and so that's like his mind being in neutral, as you're saying. So the gift is being given, but even in and of himself, he's not understanding, so there's a need for translation for the person speaking, much less those hearing. Yeah, something kind of, like that. Yeah, I think so. Kind of like, um, like you're saying the words and you have no idea what they mean. It's not building you up, um, even if it is building up other people. And to say let's all be built up together is really where Paul is is emphasizing this point. Um, not that anybody in these Christian gatherings would be left behind. Not the speaker, not the hearer, not anybody else. Hmm. Um, and so the importance of of a translation would be a really important thing. Sure, sure. And, and the importance then of the entire person receiving this gift from God, the, the, the whole person would benefit from this speaking in tongues. Right. Uh, because this speaking in tongues is, is there to benefit the church. Um, now, there's a little bit of a tangent here, but I think it's important. I love tangents. Good. Uh, because I think this is important because sometimes, especially in our Lutheran context, we're, we're pretty liturgical, formal people, and we love repetition. Uh, 
sometimes there's a conversation about, hey, sometimes I pray the Lord's Prayer and I stop thinking about it, or I start to uh, confess the Apostles' Creed and I, I'm not thinking about what I'm confessing, or I'm singing a hymn or one of our biblical canticles that's drawn from Scripture, and and I just kind of tune out. My mouth is making the words, but my mind my mind sometimes is in neutral. Uh, and in this way, I think we have a little bit of a connection to that, or can, from time to time. And sometimes people will come and say, this is why we need to do new things and not use repetitive prayers or repetitive creeds or things like that. It, but I'm not sure that saying we need to get away from doing things that are repetitive because we're not always fully engaged with them as a whole and complete person is the right answer. Um, sometimes being able to say the same thing in a new way is really helpful and really important. But sometimes saying the right answer is we need to repent for our, our lack of attention, uh, maybe our, our mindlessness, for lack of a better word, um, and then to, to refocus and rededicate ourselves to these words that are given us can be a really helpful thing, especially when we consider within our liturgical worship the way that we do what we do we pray the Lord's Prayer because Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Yeah. So we pray those words. Um, we take songs like that the angels sang to the shepherds on Christmas Eve, and we use them in our church service, or the words that the angels use around the throne of God, and we sing those in our church service. I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure that I can come up with, with words that are better than the words of Scripture, mm. um, and I'm really uncomfortable trying. So let's, let's use those words of Scripture, and where we fail, let's confess that we failed and rededicate ourselves to, to that scriptural word that has been taught us um, so that we can re-engage as a person with our mind and with our spirit as we pray and as we sing. That's right, yeah. If, if we're praying without thinking, the solution isn't to stop praying. The solution is to start thinking. Right. And, and so, to, to, so then to receive the fullness of the gift that, that God has given. And I do think there is a, a matter of perhaps liturgy, repetition, even in the background of the language that Paul uses here, the way that he speaks about your thanksgiving and the outsider saying amen, perhaps the language there indicates a, a more liturgical form of worship that would have been used among the Corinthians. Right. And I don't want to steal anything from uh, from your next guest. And so there's more to come uh, in the next episode. So That's right. come back. Uh, but I, I think that this is laying a a groundwork for orderly worship. And and that's where this is where Paul's argument is going next and finally. Right. And so so do come back. Um, it's important. That's right. Now, Paul as you've said already does not denigrate the speaking in tongues. He does elevate prophecy. We find out a little bit in this section about his own speaking in tongues. It seems that, although I don't think this is recorded anywhere for us in the New Testament other than here, Paul did have experiences of speaking in tongues, receiving this gift. Sure. He says he speaks in tongues more than the Corinthians do, and he's not bragging. He's not trying to be braggadocious or arrogant. He's just saying, this is a, a real thing, and this is a real way that God works. I do kind of wish that in the book of Acts or somewhere in Scripture that it, that it was recorded so we had a, a little more clarity on what exactly this is and how the Spirit works this way. But God didn't choose to reveal that to us, so that's okay. Uh, because he's still God and we're still not. That's right. But Paul did speak in tongues. Paul did speak in tongues. He's thankful for that. And it's a good thing. But at the same time, he really wants prophecy to be 
the one that's desired and used most. Right. And so he continues to emphasize the gift of prophecy over the gift of speaking in tongues, uh, recognizing that they're both good things. That's right. And he's going to say a little bit more about that when we get to verses 20 to 25, too. So you're going to get this five-word sermon for next week? I'll, I'll work on that. Okay, um, good. I'm sure that everybody in Millsat will be really excited for a five-word sermon. Um, I'll, uh, For what it's worth, though, since you've mentioned it, <laughs> and, and, and you've got a big smile on your face as you do, uh, Paul, all the way through both chapter 13 and chapter 14, is speaking by hyperbole. And so especially in chapter 13, uh, the if I have... If I have all of this and all of that, but have not love, I have nothing. Those are very hyperbolic statements, and, yes. and he's being very over the top. And that continues here when he says, but if I have a five-word sermon in my mind, um, he's being uh, hyperbolic. And this does mean that preachers are allowed to use more words, you know, maybe as many as seven, maybe as many as 13, sometimes maybe as many as 2,500. There you That's go. okay. That's right. That's okay. right. Very good. Thank you for that clarification, Pastor Ill. We'll look forward to that 2,500-word sermon on this coming Sunday. Uh, Pastor Hill, as, as our text continues then, Paul speaks to them as brothers. That's something we've seen throughout this epistle, is that he continues to speak to them as the saints, as the brothers. Despite the many things that need correction and instruction, he, they do remain his brothers in Christ. And he speaks to them you know, very frankly here. Uh, what does he say, beginning in verse 20? So verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Uh, and I have to admit that even in my own preparations for this, this verse rocked me back on my heels and called me to, to repentance because it's really easy. Maybe this is just a me thing. Maybe this is something that happens to a lot of sinners, maybe all sinners. When we know of something evil in the world, we want to talk about it, and, and often in order to condemn it. But when he says be infants in evil, almost to the point of be okay with being ignorant of the evil things that, that evil, unbelieving people are doing. That is not how I'm wired. Um, and, and for this, I repent. Uh, this is something that, boy, that, that would be good if I were more ignorant of the evil in the world. But I still want to know all about it. Um, but when Paul says to be, to be infants regarding evil... Be mature in knowledge, and especially in the knowledge of Christ. And so, as, as he calls us brothers, uh, male brothers and female brothers together, uh, he wants us to continually live in that place where we are knowledgeable about Christ our Lord. Hmm. Now, in verse 21, he says, In the law it is written, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. Where is he <laughs> quoting from? What's he saying? Yeah. So he says, in the law it's said, and then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, which is ordinarily not considered the law. And so I'm... He's the apostle. He can do yeah, that. Yeah, he's the apostle. He can do that. Uh, usually my people would, would uh, ask me for clarification if I said Hold that. On, They'd raise real. their hand. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but here he goes back and he quotes from Isaiah uh, and... Uh, that's chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, uh, and, and in case you don't have it memorized, goes like this. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And so Paul says that this gift of tongues is given so that people would believe even in foreign languages and in foreign tongues. And it is in this, this gift of God that people will find rest 
and and repose. Um, and then in but then well but and so in that context of Isaiah twenty eight then that language of the foreigners being spoken in the land of Israel is a form of judgment against them. So since they have not believed, they are going to be conquered by a people that speak a foreign language, and I think that that. That fact, the way that the foreign language being spoken in Israel served as a matter of judgment, is really where Paul takes this next as he says, you know, imagine an unbeliever, an outsider coming into your church and he hears you speaking in all these foreign languages that nobody knows. He's going to think you're crazy, thus serving only as judgment, further judgment to him in his unbelief, rather than what prophecy would do, which is prophecy would very clearly tell him, hey, you're a sinner, you're convicted of that sin, you need to repent and trust in the gospel. Exactly. And so... Sorry uh, if I stole everything oh, no. you were about to say. No, that's, that's just fine. I've, I, I, <laughs> there's a little extra in the tank. We're good. Um, so one of the things that Paul says is, if that unbeliever came in and heard you all speaking in tongues, um, like he might be impressed by this act of power, but he also might think that you're speaking out of your minds. And if these are languages that that particular unbeliever doesn't know, he might think that it's gibberish or that you're crazy. Um, though, it, very interestingly, uh, another thing for your church, church night trivia. Uh, the Greek word for speaking out of your minds is meno, and that's the word that maniac comes from. Huh. Uh, and so he, you could kind of clunkily translate this as uh, speaking like maniacs, mm. uh, for what it's worth. If that makes your church night trivia, write in, uh, because we definitely want to hear about that. That's for sure. Yeah, I need to I, hear about that. I think this is an important it. thing, though, because I, I think many people would assume, oh, if someone who's an unbeliever walks into our service and they see everybody speaking in language they don't know, I think there are a number of Christians today, at least, that might assume that would be something that would, oh, that's going to open their minds to realize, oh, this is the truth, because how else they could do that? Paul uses it the other way, though. He says, you're going to think they're going to think you're maniacs if you're acting that way. Yeah. Rather, don't be a maniac. Rather, if if all you guys are prophesying and they come in, they'll be convicted. They'll fall down on their face before God, and they will recognize that God is really among you. And then that that grace, that, that charis, is really seen by this charismatic gift, and they will see and experience the love of God that has come among you. And it's not just about... Uh, this power of speaking in tongues to impress people. Uh, speaking in tongues isn't there to impress people. And realistically, neither is prophecy. Both of these things exist so that people who don't know the gospel and who don't believe in Jesus, or those who do know the gospel and believe in Jesus, would do it more. Um, this is all about the continual reception of God's grace and not about... Uh, a Christian's ability to impress themselves and build up their own confidence in their faith or to impress anybody else. Because the Christian faith isn't about you. It, it's really about Christ for you. And we need to keep our focus there because as the sinners that we are, we do try to make everything about us. Speaking in tongues isn't about you. It's about the grace and the gospel of God. Prophecy isn't about you. It's about the the grace and power of God. And we can continue this conversation and say baptism, the Lord's Supper, the speaking of the absolution, the preaching of sermons, none of these things are about you. They're about the grace of God that is for you. And so 
that's not to say that any of those things are disconnected from you. But you're, you're not the subject. You're the recipient, the object, that you are the person that God loves. What wonderful news that is. Prophecy and speaking in tongues are to convey the person who hears this message and understands it is the person that God loves. Mm. You know, what strikes me about the way that he speaks about prophecy there, that the he said, again, imagining you're all together and you're all prophesying, then this unbeliever or outsider enters. He's convicted by all, called to account by all. I mean, notice that this is the church working together to proclaim the gospel, the law and the gospel to this person. It reminds me of the way Paul spoke all the way back in chapter 3, where he's talking about Paul, Apollos, what are we? We're all servants. One waters, one plants, opposite plant than water. God gives the growth. So in this gift of prophecy, right, it's not about, well, my, it, was, it was my prophecy that brought him to faith. No, no, all are working together. God is giving the growth. Again, you see the body building up each other. And in this case of these charismatic gifts, these are gifts given by God for the good of the church. So it's not even my prophecy. It's God's yeah. prophecy that I spoke. It's not my speaking in tongues but the speaking in tongues that God gave me and the translation or interpretation that he gave someone else. So, Pastor L., we are running short on time. We have about a minute or so left. We have a section of Scripture that we don't always read that often together, but we had an opportunity to study it together. What do we need to take from this today? From this today, we're called to receive the gifts of God when and where he gives them. And if he gives you the gift of speaking in tongues, thanks be to God. And if he doesn't, thanks be to God, because it is all about this Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. With that said, we continue to focus on those places where if we see that we aren't fully engaged mind and spirit, repent and return to the word of God and to the grace of God, because it is Christ our Lord who continues to come to us. And the way that this says it in verse 25 is really important in this Advent season and as Christmas draws close. God is among you. God is among us. And that is as true in his church in the year 2023 or 2024 as it is in the first century. God has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ and you have his grace and that trumps any charismatic gift. Pastor Peter Ill is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. God's blessings. Pursue love, dear Christians. Pursue those things that build up the body of Christ, which is who you are. You have been given his grace. Live in that grace with love for each other. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 14, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.